10th Canto, Chapter 14, Brahma's Prayers to Lord Krishna, text number 5 and 6, and 6 is on the board. Pureha Bhuman Bahavopi Yoginas Tradar Piteha Nija Karma Labdaya Vibhuja Bhaktaiva Katapanitaya Translation O Almighty Lord, in the past many yogis in this world achieved the platform of devotional service by offering all their endeavors unto you and faithfully carrying out their prescribed duties. Through such devotional service, perfected by the processes of hearing and chanting about you, they came to understand you, O infallible one, and could easily surrender to you and achieve your supreme abode. Text number six. Tata pi buman mahimagunasyate. Yeah. 
Perception of the Supreme Soul. My perception of the Supreme Soul. Arupata. Arupata. Without attachment to material forms. Without attachment to material forms. Um, where was I? He. He. Indeed. Indeed. Ananda Bhoja Atmataya. Ananda Bhoja Atmataya. As self-manifested, self without the help, without the help of, of any other illuminating agent. Translation. Non-devotees, however, uh, oh no, I forgot something, sorry. Na, Na. not, not. Cha. Cha. cha, end, end. anyata, anyata. Otherwise. Otherwise. Translation. Non-devotees, however, cannot realize you in your full personal feature. Nevertheless, it may be possible for them to realize your expansion as the impersonal supreme by cultivating direct perception of the self within the heart. But they can do this only by purifying their minds and senses of all conceptions of material distinctions and all attachment to material objects. Only in this way... Will your impersonal feature manifest itself to them? Purport. It is difficult for conditioned souls to understand all the transcendental features of the Supreme Lord. As confirmed in the first canto of Srimad Bhagavatam 1 to 11, Brahmiti Paramatmeti Bhagavan Iti Sabjate. The transcendental existence of God is understood progressively as the impersonal effulgence, the localized supersoul in one's heart. And finally, the Supreme Personality of Godhead existing in His eternal abode. Lord Krishna's transcendental existence is beyond the qualities of material nature. Thus, here the Lord is referred to as Agunasya, without material qualities. Even by practicing yoga or engaging in advanced philosophical speculation, one will find it very difficult to understand clearly the transcendental existence beyond the modes of material nature. And these processes are virtually useless for understanding the Lord's own limited transcendental qualities, which are far beyond the impersonal conception of spiritual existence. Only by the mercy of the pure devotee of the Lord, or by associating with the Lord himself, can one begin the process of realizing the personal feature of God, a process that culminates in pure Krishna consciousness, the final and supreme perfection of knowledge. Om Ajnana Timarandasya 
it is described that uh, first of all in text number five it speaks about devotional service and that through such devotional service the uh, ultimate goal in life um, the uh, paramgati is is attained um, um, then in the second verse, text number six, non-devotees are described, uh, but not just non-devotees, but particularly amongst them jnanis, those who see the emptiness of sense gratification, those who see that material life can not bring happiness and who therefore develop some detachment from matter. They can focus on the uh, on the uh, on the real meaning of life. Uh, so, uh, and they may possibly possibly come to an understanding of the impersonal feature of the Lord, or they may possibly come to an understanding that everything rests on spiritual energy and they may understand that that spiritual energy is eternal and they may understand that the material energy is temporary with all its forms and so on and and that is the best the best they could possibly do uh, how could one possibly come to uh, to the impersonal truth uh, or the, if one starts speculating, uh, well, one approach is, is that if there is spirit, then spirit should be what matter is not. And since matter has quality, therefore spirit should have no quality. And this is impersonal philosophy. Uh, it should be the opposite. Uh, of course, that is not a fact. The spirit is not the opposite of matter. It is not that that what is in matter cannot be in spirit. Because spirit is the origin and matter is the reflection. Therefore, matter carries the nature of the spiritual reality, but only in a uh, minimized form. Uh, the shadow reflection, just the shadow. As the shadows of our bodies are showing the contours, a blackish form, contours, but no color, no features. Uh, it's just the contours that one can see in the shadow, quite limited. In this way, um, through matter, one can understand something about the spiritual nature. Um, but the first mistake made by the impersonalists is to think that matter and spirits are opposites. And therefore, they will claim that the Absolute is Nirguna, has no quality, 
and is formless and so on. Um, this is a condemned, a condemned state by the Vaishnavas. It is considered the worst condition. Kaivalya Narakayate, it is considered to be a hellish condition because in that condition the uh, Supreme Personality of Godhead is, is denied, devotional service to Him is denied, the spiritual world is denied, and therefore they are known as Mayavads because they say these three are, are Maya, these three are illusion. Krishna is illusion, spiritual is illusion, devotional service is illusion as well. So that is, uh, is a very serious matter because that cuts the living being off of his, of his very life source, of the very source of his happiness. Um, and of course, the impersonalist may be able to realize sat, eternity, but not sit and announce, not complete knowledge and not, uh, and not happiness. Um, therefore, it is a condemned, condemned state. Therefore, it is highly unfortunate because this impersonal understanding is in denial of the personal understanding of, Krish of, the, of Krishna. And that is the most unfortunate. Um, a materialist who is simply preoccupied with the uh, material energy and trying to enjoy his senses, he basically doesn't know. He basically doesn't think about such, such things and thinks it's all a little, you know, too much with your head in the clouds, but, you know, talking about God. I mean, let's talk about bread and butter. Right? <laughs> let's talk about something real and practical instead of all these kind of uh, abstract ideas and dreaming and this and that about questions you can never any answer anyway. Right? I mean, is there a God or not? Unanswerable question. And just simply don't waste your time. Uh, uh, that is the Muda. Uh, the Muda who is, is dull and who is not asking any philosophical questions. Um, mm, once I was on on a boat tour with Sachinandan Swami, two boats we actually had, big boats, uh, 35 meters long with masts, with three masts on them, sailing boats and lots of devotees. And we had anchored in a little port in, uh, on a Danish island. And we were using the boat as a stage. And we were having a kirtan, we had drama, we had... Uh, Drum, you know, drum demonstrations and all kinds of things like that to enter. And we had a big crowd. Um, they all came to look at the boat, and then there was entertainment. So it was very nice. When I stepped off the boat after the program, there was a man, and uh, he said, "That was very nice. That was very nice." He said, "Yes." He said, "You know." I also have a big boat, he said, you know. I said, oh, that's very nice. He said, yes, and I'm from Holland. I said, well, I'm also from Holland. He said, wow. He said, do you want to see my boat? I said, yes, why not? And indeed, he had a big ocean sailor, you know, and one of these huge yachts that go across the Atlantic. And he asked me to come on board, and he said, what would you like to drink? I said, water. <laughs> and um, so I had my water, and he had his, uh, his beer, and we were just about, uh, I was just taking, he waited till I took a sip of my water, and then he said, and he started to tell me, the beauty, he said, the beauty of crossing the ocean. When you see the sun rising from the, from the waters and the red reflecting in the water in the sky, he said, I have never seen something 
something that touched me so deep in my life. He said, when I saw that, it was just, I was just overwhelmed, just overwhelmed. So, you know, I took another sip of my water and he says, and what went wrong in your life that you had to invent a God? And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, what happened here? Only two minutes ago, you were almost on your knees for the sunrise. You were almost praying. And that wasn't just appreciation for the beauty of the sun. You were getting emotional, you know, deeply involved. I mean, you were almost religious. Do you know that? <laughs> um, he took a sip of his wine, all of his beer, to, uh, to digest that one. And uh, anyway, it, it, it bogged down in, in useless talk. And when he offered me another glass of water, I said, no, I guess I have to go. Um, so we, may, we see a similar thing in the autobiography of Charles Darwin. It's also very interesting that there is a reference where he says that you know, he says, these days, right, these days, I can no longer appreciate art because it's adding a magic dimension to things, right? You know, and therefore he said music or poetry. He says, even Shakespeare, he wrote, even Shakespeare, I can no longer appreciate. And then he writes, sometimes I think I might have lost something. And then he moves on. So, in other words, systematically reduced reality to just a, a, a biochemical mix. And that's all it is and nothing else. And therefore, any sentiment you read into it is... Is unacceptable. But even he felt that possibly he was missing something. Uh, if one strips life of, of its magic, right, then what is left? The beauty of the sun right now. Right? The last few days, it's freezing. It's like bizarre, but it's beautiful weather. It's amazing. I mean, very unbelgian. <laughs> And, uh, but we appreciate, we're not complaining. Um, very beautiful. Uh, the majesty, the magic of the Supreme Lord. Uh, so anyone is sometimes in this world feeling some awe and reverence. It is natural, it is natural. In 1963, that was the coldest winter I've ever seen in my life. Okay? At that year, in 1963, some of you may remember, in 1963, the North Sea was frozen and there was like huge chunks of ice and on the beach. And since I lived close to the beach, there were chunks of ice that were like two, three meters high. And they're lying on the, uh, on the beach all over. And also the sea was frozen in between the blocks of ice. So it's like... The Schelder. The Schelder. Huh? You were at the Schelder. The Schelder. <laughs> even the Schelder was frozen now. <laughs> yeah. And, and they were driving with cars on, on some on lakes and things like that. That was what was going on in 1963. I was 10 years old. And I was walking on this on this ice on the ocean, and I knew God exists. <laughs> I knew it then. I said, "This is no longer you. This is no longer ordinary. This is more. This is extraordinary. The divine had revealed itself." Um, uh, yes, you know, it is said there is the uh, the phenomenal world. And there is the nominus or the nominum. Rudolf Otto, our philosopher, spoke about that which is the other realm. 
the nomenon, he calls it, and that from the other realm, the sacred, sometimes flows into the phenomenal world. Sometimes it's here. Huh? Many examples we can, we can mention. We see it in art, we see it in nature, we see something sacred manifest. Huh? One more story. I was on this plane coming from Africa and uh, at 5.30 in the morning, we're just over Europe, and suddenly there is an African man who stands in front of the cabin, and he goes like, a gesture that a conductor makes in front of his orchestra. And next moment, this, this black gospel choir, about 50 of them, started singing. And you know, voices over voices in harmony, rhythms through rhythms, etc., it was incredible. It was celestial, and we were flying in the sky, and the sun was rising. And at that moment, I saw three pilots, three pilots standing in the cabin looking at us, wondering who's flying the plane. <laughs> I hope that God is with us. Anyway, but it was another moment that the sacred, the sacred manifested in this world. Um, so, yes, that is a fact. In one conversation with Allen Ginsberg, Allen Ginsberg brings up the point and he says, in, in several religions, a deity is not accepted because how can you capture spirit in matter? And Prabhupada's answer, he knocked him out in the first round, you know, <laughs> immediately. I mean, Allen Ginsberg was getting ready for 10 rounds of debate and discussion. And Prabhupada just simply said, matter doesn't exist. Bang. Finished. <laughs> all right. End of discussion. That's it. Matter doesn't exist. It's all spirit. It is all spirit. Matter is also spirit. And that is the beginning. So matter is also Krishna. And we know, uh, we know the, the Vibhuti chapter, the 10th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, of mountains and the Himalayas, this, that whole list is given of how Krishna manifests himself in this world. Uh, everything is the energy of Krishna. That is deep understanding. Yes. But... One cannot get any further than that uh, on his own through speculation. Uh, those who have studied philosophers are sometimes amazed how much they understood on their own. Uh, I mean, some of them really came up with, with, with deep understandings, uh, uh, brilliant things, but one cannot know the Supreme Personality of Godhead, not by any form of mental speculation, not by drilling the respiration, you know, not by any mystic powers one cannot touch the tip of the toe of the Lord. No, that is not possible. That only is received from the devotees. That is what we are, are hearing. And, uh, and we see that. Therefore we see that many devotees, before coming to Krishna consciousness, had a flirtation with impersonalism. Yeah some form of impersonalism for a while, checking it out, looking at it. Many, some were hardcore, uh, hardcore uh, Mayavadis. Uh, one time, Kirtananda Swami spoke to uh, to Srila Prabhupada and, and said, why are you always preaching against impersonalism? 
I mean, in India, maybe that would make sense. But in the West, maybe it would be better to speak out against atheism. Because, you know, that's really more on people's mind. Is there a God or is there not? And that's the big question. So why not just focus more on atheism? And Prabhupada's reply was, you're asking that question because you are an impersonalist. And with Kirtanananda, uh, we could, for a moment, reflect. Are we the impersonalists? Well, certainly uh, our our culture in many ways is, is full of impersonalism. Just think of a winter of a winter in a previous year when we would travel on a train. Of course, now we don't, but we used to travel on trains, remember? And then in the winter, you look at someone in the window because it acts like a mirror. So you feel these eyes on you and you see someone staring at you and the mirror quickly looks down. It's that you sit on the train and it's quiet. Nobody speaks, but nobody. It's pretty impersonal. And uh, yes, uh, also very interesting how how religion retreated under the pressure of science. As the uh, brothers Wright invented a plane, they flew up there and didn't see any angels on the clouds or anything like that. It was a disappointment. But no problem, no problem. The, uh, this was simply the mythological aspect of the philosophy uh, of where man needs to fall prey to anthropomorphism. The simple man needs to project his human reality on the spiritual reality. But actually, God is all pervading love like a wet blanket. Um, What is that all-pervading love? Some sugar syrup? What what is all-pervading love that has no quality, that has no interaction, that has no, no personality? Where is love without personality? Is it some sort of warm bath and we eternally float there like gulab jamas in the the, the sugar syrup and say, this is love? Uh, What is that? Love means exchange. So when we met the Vaishnavas and the Vaishnavas explained what love was, it started to make sense. Love is based on, on, on making sacrifice for someone else. And that sacrifice purchases our heart in exchange. Love is based on conquering, conquering, on doing something that is really dear to me. Yeah? If you do something that's dear to me, hey, I love you to death. Yes, but if you don't do anything to conquer me, or if you've done something to conquer me 20 years ago, then now my love may wear out. What was that again that I used to love you for? So, love is about, about, is a relationship where one conquers and where there is exchange. that is Vrindavan. Um, the love of Lord Brahma is, is mixed with awe and reverence, we discussed many times, and therefore it is limited. Uh, love mixed with awe and reverence is love that cannot be expressed to its fullest depth. 
it stays on the surface. The residents of Vrindavan, they had become so much purchased by Krishna, they could not tolerate a moment, a moment of being without Krishna. A moment seemed to be like 12 years or more. Uh, we find a description how Uddhava comes to Vrindavan and he meets Nanda and Yasoda there. And there is that discussion where, uh, Nanda, where Yasoda, she is crying and crying and crying and crying. And the first thing Uddhava thinks is she's going to turn into a river if she goes on like this. Next thing is that uh, she is in between crying, she's saying, How could you let him go to Nandamara? And she keeps on repeating it to a point where Nandamara finally has enough and says, Listen, you mad woman, Krishna just went to the forest, he will be back tonight. You understand? <laughs> Who is mad? Who is mad? <laughs> so, uh, this kind of, of love uh, doesn't care that, uh, about the majesty of Krishna. In fact, doesn't want to know that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Um, Nanda and Yasoda only know that Krishna is their son. Um, a similar thing comes up in relation to Jagannath Mishra, where Jagannath Mishra it is, is, it is stated that his son is misbehaving and you should correct him, you should, uh, uh, he should be chastised, yes. But then in a dream, one Brahmana comes and says, don't you know, don't you know who he is? Don't you know who you're chastising? Don't you know that you're chastising the Supreme Personality of Godhead? And in the dream, in the dream, Jagannath Mishra says, I don't know anything about these things. Who is the Supreme Personality of Godhead? I only know that whatever he is, he's still my son and I'm his father and it is my duty to correct him. And that's all I know. Finished. He didn't care if he was the Supreme Lord. He may be the Supreme Lord. I don't care about that. That's, he's my son. That's what matters. Don't you understand? Yes, Supreme Lord or not. He's my son. I have my, my duties. And when he misbehaves, I must punish him. Yes. So, this is Vrindavan. Um, Lord Brahma is an, is an outsider in Vrindavan. Lord Brahma is, is witnessing. He can get a bit closer than the other demigods who are flying in the sky in planes and watching from above. Lord Brahma is a bit more intimate, but still he's an outsider. Like Uddhava is an outsider. And yes, whenever we go to Uddhava Kund in Vrindavan, which is behind Govardhan, just actually on the other side of Kusum Saravar, is Udavakund. And when we are at Udavakund, we look at Udava, who came to Vrindavan as an outsider and who could not understand the, the, the intimacy of, of the relationship between Krishna and the residents of Vrindavan. And then we realize that Uddhava is a much greater outsider than we are. I mean, Uddhava is, is very close to Krishna, intimate to Krishna. Uddhava is really always thinking of Krishna, and Uddhava is a very exalted personality. We are way behind Uddhava. We are outsiders. Outsiders. Remnants of impersonalism may remain in us. Remnants of attraction to mystic perfection may remain in us. If I, if only I, would have mystic power, then... Please finish the essay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes, well, 
If only I would have mystic power, what would you write? Uh, our cook might say, well, I would do lunch in two minutes. <laughs> yes. And what would you do then? Hmm. Yeah. What's next? What would we do then? Uh, yes. If we had mystic power, um, Bukti Mukti Siddhikani Sakula Ashanta, it cannot fulfill. The Bukti, the one who is engaging in sense enjoyment, the one who is striving for impersonal liberation, or the one who is looking for mystic perfection, still Kami, still unfulfilled, still lusty desires, still full of desires. Only a devotee can be fulfilled. Um, so, yes, all of these things, bhukti, sense gratification, bhukti, um, the one looking for liberation, siddhi, uh, all ashanta, all not satisfied, all not peaceful, all restless, all disturbed. Still not home, still roaming around, uh, searching for what has never been found. Everywhere, just roaming through the universe. Brahmanda Brahmite Kona, an endless journey. Uh, some Uparyada, sometimes upwards, sometimes downwards. An endless journey through, through the universe, through the universes, life after life never finding peace, never finding rest, always finding something, something new to be excited about for, for a while until it gets boring. Um, as Siddhanta said, you meet this person and you find that this person has an ocean of qualities, an ocean. And then you walk around the shores and realize it's no bigger than a pond, and you, and you, and you never care to see this person again. Call it falling in love and falling out of love. Uh, yes. So this is the uh, situation. We fall in love with things, with people, with situation, with places, and so on. Uh, and then. Um, you know, you may find the most beautiful place in the world. I mean, this, is, I love this place. And just by karma, you might die in that place. <laughs> Can happen, yeah? I, ironically speaking, this is it. I found paradise, and then you die in paradise. There you go. <laughs> that became the cause of your death, paradise. So, what are we looking for paradise for? Right. What's the point? Uh, oh, mia bella paradise. Mia bella paradiso. Um, it is simply uh, a waste of time. But that waste of time continues, even into the Brahma Jyoti, even for the yogis, uh, and will only stop when you finally come to Krishna. And therefore, somehow or other, although we are still contaminated by all these previous efforts in sense gratification, we often look at ourselves, oh yes, I'm still attached to sense gratification, I know that. But what about, I'm still an impersonalist. I know that. I'm still attached to mystic powers. How about that? Okay? These attachments are also there still within us. Um, but somehow or other, we got the topmost knowledge in the midst of all this material contamination. And that is our good fortune. That is the mercy of the pure devotees. And it's so powerful that even, even those of us who are so weak and so contaminated uh, in three ways can still be uplifted and can still attain perfection in one lifetime. 
That is a miracle. I'll stop. Any questions? Any comments? Uh, thank you for the lecture, Margaret. Um, you said love is based on making sacrifices that eventually purify us. But if uh, a sacrifice is made out of love, is it still considered a sacrifice at that point? Um, <clears throat> if a sacrifice is made out of love, then it would not be considered a sacrifice uh, in all the aspects that would be there uh, in dictionary def uh, definitions, because in dictionary definitions we'll find that the word sacrifice contains an element of doing something that you don't really want to do, but you do it for a greater good. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, the other aspects of sacrifice, of making an offering, yeah, will, uh, will be there. So, I would say, um, talking about sacrifice, we can now look at two sacrifice, two categories of sacrifice. A sacrifice which is painful, and a sacrifice which is ecstatic and blissful. And in devotional service, in the beginning, it may be a sacrifice which is a little painful for regulated principles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a little painful. Uh, but then it becomes a blissful sacrifice. So in the beginning, a painful sacrifice is then transformed into a blissful sacrifice. In more advanced stages. Think so. You know, in this world, we are bomb. We first of all, we have our consciousness as it is, and so many things in there from so many lives: desires for sense gratification, in, in personal uh, influences, in, uh, inclination towards mystic powers, whatever. All the contamination is still in our consciousness. Then, on top of that. There is the collective consciousness of the whole world, and that collective consciousness of the whole world turns around and bombards us with information. And we live in the information age. Information now flows straight in. And so, uh, we, uh, we know that, and we need filters. Right? Some people have filters, programs that filter out information on computers or on phones. Um, others pay, but also in our consciousness, we need filters. So all information coming into the consciousness must be filtered. It's the real thing. No, it's not. It's rubbish. See, so that had to be filtered. Yes, so so much information is to be filtered. Yes. And, uh, but the question is, how good are our filters? And even sometimes we read a book about Krishna consciousness, but even there we still need a filter, because uh, even there there may be some little things that are not always completely aligned with the proper Siddhanta. And then there's Prabhupada's books. 
And finally, all filters off. Drink it in. Let it just seep into the consciousness. It doesn't matter wherever you read it. It is 100% reliable. 100% completely. What a relief. So, reading Prabhupada's books is such a relief. Finally, you can turn the filters off. Oh, they filter, filter, filter. Makes you exhausted. What do I think about this? Are you going to take the vaccine or are you not going to take the vaccine? <laughs> you saw the little video clip of the one who got the injection and then they ask, so how are you feeling now? And he says, I'm feeling very good. And he his face turns into a horse face. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, what to make of that? All these decisions, all these things, we have to filter, we have to decide what to do, what not to do. Always, always big questions, what to do, what not to do, what is right, what is not right. Prabhupada's books, relief, relief, relief. I'm not speaking out against taking a vaccine or something like that. I'm just saying that it's a question on people's minds. Yes. Maharaji says realm means of impersonalism and attraction to mystic power, perfection will always remain in us. We will never get I didn't say always. I, I said they are still within us. Oh, they are still I was thinking what is... No, I didn't say always. I said, yes. are still within us now. Yeah, in the Vedic literatures, the, uh, the evolution idea is going through the same sequence of species, but through reincarnation. But it goes from these more primitive species. It goes through similar sequences. <laughs> and uh, so Darwin's sequences uh, resemble what is there in, in, in Vedic literature. Um, another point on evolution is when we study a little broader in Vedic literature, then we understand that the way Lord Brahma is creating, and Lord Brahma is not creating the whole universe all at once. It's not then, and then Lord Brahma was seated on, 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 uh, on the lotus, and then he just uh, got the knowledge, the Sristi Shakti, and then he just manifests the whole thing. No, he does it in steps. He does it in steps. And these steps are going over yeah, on, on his time scale, not on our time scale. So there's huge gaps between them. And uh, he creates in batches. You know, I mean, I can't remember at the top of my head exactly each batch. That would have to, I would have to prepare, you know, on a piece of paper with notes. Then I could give you more detail uh, how the batches go. But I do have that somewhere. And uh, then it just shows 
how suddenly a whole batch of, 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 of living beings come into being. So, um, even in the, uh, in the evolution theory, as it exists in, in science, there are such, uh, uh, there are periods where suddenly such a variety of species are, are manifest, and like, where did they all come from? Yeah, even that didn't come in like a natural uh, progression. That's one point. Another another comment on evolution is that in the uh, traditional sense of evolution, there is the idea that okay, one species gradually turns into another, and man came from monkeys and blah blah blah. You know, now. That's, that's some sort of traditional approach. A more modern approach is about genetic evolution. So genetic evolution means that we can see that the genes of a chimpanzee are very close to the genes, gene structure of a human being. And there are certain groups of animals that clearly have, the sim have similar gene structures to each other. And one can see that therefore it, 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 it indicates a common ancestor between the chimpanzees and human beings and then other species that are similar also have a common ancestor. So now we can create computer models of all the common ancestors of when, at what point in time, there would be common ancestor. And now, if we calculate it further, you know, as we continue this, we could calculate the common ancestor of all the common ancestors. <laughs> and who would that be? We know. They don't know yet. They're still working on it. We know. We know. That was Lord Brahman. And then, his ancestor, ancestry, we also know. Yeah. So, in this way, it's not that we are uh, diametrically opposed. There is evolution, there is Hare Krishna, now we are creationists, they are evolutionists, and boom, you know. No, actually, uh, we can meet, actually, we can meet. Yes. What to do when we meet the impersonalists in the heart and when we meet this desire for information from mystical powers? How to how to then or how to overcome that? Um the impersonalist uh, is overcome. Srila Prabhupada said in deity worship in serving the Vaishnavas. We're learning to serve the deity. So we're learning again to become a personal servant. And it, it is in personal service that we get over that. I mean, even in spiritual life, for example, we can be here. Uh, I'm serving Krishna. Right? And, and that is an element of impersonalism. We're not, I'm, not, I'm not constitutionally a servant yet. It's just like me and Krishna, but I'm not serving the Vaishnavas. So we have to serve the Vaishnavas in, in, in various ways. We have to serve Krishna, and then gradually in that service, this impersonalism will disappear. Otherwise, it's me and my service, you know. I'm doing this service, me and my service. That gives a lot of space for this impersonal uh, mentality to still remain uh, to a degree. But if you really become the humble servant of the Vaishnavas, then there that impersonalism can disappear. Okay, done. Thank you very, very much. Your Prabhupada Namakana Swami Ki. Yeah. Yeah.